Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about live albums. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about the live album, Past, Present, and Future. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. It is a full-on Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking about live albums, history of, uh, you know, the the state of past, present, and future, really. Um, there's, I guess there's been sort of a resurgence of late in uh, in live recordings. I mean, Christian, you were you were talking about a few uh, fairly recent albums, but we we're going to dive into the the history of the uh, of the live album and, and sort of track it from uh, back in the back in its heyday, late '60s, early '70s. Um, and uh, I don't know. Hello, guys. Yeah, we're here. Hey, how you so. doing? <laughs> But uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess. Well, well, I think interesting how this kind of discussion came up is, is we were talking about you know that there were there were there any good live albums you know something that we kind of like asked ourselves, and then you know kind of went back and, and a had to pick a couple great ones that we thought were great, and then also um, you know took some time to actually look at the fact that back in the day it seemed like everybody had a live album, right? Yeah, it was it was kind of a I think it was you know back in the day of the seven album contract. Among other things, I think these were beneficial for both the artist and the uh, record company. Um, and in, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, this was a way to to sort of check off one of your uh, one of your recordings, satisfy the label. But also for record companies, it was a, a really inexpensive way to make an album that they could market, that they could sell on the heels of of somebody having a, a potential hit. Additionally, it was a way to, um, you know, I think a lot of A&R guys you know, back then especially would see a band live and then wonder why the magic of that band couldn't be captured on um, recordings. And it was, a, you know, again, you know, as we talked about Soundbreaking, the documentary a while back, I mean, the history of, of record production really only dates back to sort of 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s. So, you know, it really was, they still were really working out a lot of the kinks and how to, how to capture performance um, in the studio. And uh, a lot of the, obviously a lot of the tools that are available today weren't available then. So, you know, a band like the MC5, who were, you know, a force, not necessarily, uh, you know, they weren't the Peter, Paul, and Mary types, and um, you know they weren't really surviving on on um, you know a precious talent. They were an ass kicking live band, and kick out the jams uh, was their you know was their uh, you know it, it was their showcase. 
uh, rather than, you know, what I It was their call sign, yeah. I mean, there's no way, you know, that that really was sort of the defining sound. And it's interesting that you say that because I was sort of wondering, um, you know, what you you sort of did a little bit more research into the history of of why these live albums exist. And, and, you know, I think we'll get in in a second to to sort of what was it about sort of the late 60s and early or and and 1970s, I guess, throughout that that provided such fertile territory for for these things. But, you know, I was thinking about how this... uh, how this aligns historically with with the history of multi-tracking because you know of course a, a live album you know there's no way like you, you are capturing the raw chemistry of a band mistakes and all if they mm-hmm. exist um and you know i, I guess for we're, bands we're, that were gigging so frequently dead. <laughs> yeah um but you know for for bands that were you know that were gigging constantly i'm sure it was kind of a weird experience to walk into a studio and be told okay we're laying it we're laying down every musical part separately um you know you you aren't going to be able to play you know you can listen to uh the drummer i guess but you're going to do it in headphones and you're going to be sitting on a stool or whatever you want like it's not i mean it's a very different experience yeah i think well, the, you know go ahead jer no no i was going to say i mean to your point too i think going back to some of those live albums can be a little disappointing in, in my opinion because you listen to I'm a huge fan of the late 60s early 70s Stones and their classic live album from that time which is a good one get your yayas out but there, you know it sounds exactly to that like so where you have you know extra instrumentation and, and, and sort of flourishes in, in the albums you, you scaled all that back live and, and they didn't have the technology that live bands have today which we'll talk about later but um, you know some of those albums sound a little thin you know the live albums back then I don't know if you yeah, guys agree are, or disagree yeah, are they, yeah so, sometimes you know part of it was recording technology I mean you can't not the really MC5 capture, <laughs> no not the MC5 but I, I actually was uh, specifically get your yayas out I mean that is sort of the definitive version of Midnight Rambler uh, on that record one thing that that jumped out of me when i was doing my research so today and i did not know this before uh today was the get your yayas out was recorded the same uh, the week before altamont which is pretty interesting um i would have loved to hear the altamont like live album i think <laughs> well actually you can see that um <laughs> you can see that one. yeah no it's true yeah <laughs> Uh, you can see them piling back into the helicopter exactly. running for their lives <laughs> with graham parsons and uh, yeah but um, you know, it, it's funny though because I think there was that that thing where you know, like I said before, where like these the A and R guys and the label guys were like, "Well, these guys kicked ass live. Like, why why can't we capture that?" And there was a couple of bands, you know, I, I remember particularly from the seventies um, that really broke on their live album. I mean, uh, you know, Cheap Trick. Uh, and Kiss both had, I think, three records out. Their live album was their fourth album, and the record companies were just scratching their heads, going like, "Why aren't these guys giant?" And um, you know, somebody had the bright because idea because you can't see their cool costumes. Well, Kiss honest, in Kiss's case, yeah, <laughs> or as I like to call them, cats. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, in Cheap Trick's case, it was funny. I mean, they were—they are the rock and roll cliche. They were huge in Japan. Um, you know, the Japanese, they were, uh, called them the American Beatles. And, um, what they did was, you know, rather than, you know, keep beating a dead horse and touring the Midwest, um, they packed up and went over to Budokan, uh, which is a, which was the, you know, um, arena in, uh, Tokyo and played, um, almost the greatest hits package from their first three albums, which is a bit of a misnomer since they had no hits, but, um, you know, that's a sort of a, uh, 
an amalgam of, of three records worth of songs on that, on that particular album. And let's add Peter Frampton's Frampton Comes Alive to this conversation. I, I think one of the things with these three artists in particular, and especially Frampton and Cheap Trick, is it was a greatest hits package, right? So they, they had really catchy, great songs, Frampton and, and Cheap Trick, but nobody, they, the albums probably didn't sell to the level that obviously record companies wanted them to. And then these live albums became almost like a de facto greatest hit. So people could get a, a package deal, you yeah. know, A, they sound great, uh, but you also have every, of all of the best songs. Yeah, you, Do you think in the case of like a Frampton though, part of it was, you know, obviously the, the talk box was such a, um, was was such a you know big part of his sound uh, that I, I guess I'm I'm wondering if um, I'm wondering if you know the fact that he could do it live um, was sort of a novelty and that was really something that was kind of interesting to listeners. I don't know. I never really listened to it to be honest with you. So um, I'm, well, it's I'm all you've ever heard though, Frampton. Was. I don't think I've ever heard a Frampton track that isn't from Frampton Comes Alive. You know, yeah, if you've ever heard a Frampton song, it's it's Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, there's you know he had a couple of other hits uh, before. I mean, after that, but nothing before. And it was a really strange thing because I, I remember those. You know, I mean that was. You know the baby. Uh, I mean, sorry. Um, uh, you know those songs were like seven and a half minutes long, which was really unusual for radio play. And at that point, I mean, I guess it was sort of. The what, what year was that? Do we know? Seventy six. Like, how was it though? I mean, didn't Stairway to Heven kind of break the back of that? Um, yeah, I mean that was an outlier, certainly. But um, and also, you know, I mean that was the same year as like Hotel California and things. So yeah, I mean things were were you know that the. the this was the tipping point, you know what I mean. This was the moment when that when that uh, yeah. This was this was like the, I always think of this as like the era of like super long songs on rock radio. Like yeah. it was the only time you could ever do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, can you know the Kansas uh, Frampton um, Eagles? Like you know, oh God. Well, you know, I think it was when the uh, when the DJ started, uh, you know, well, using them to take bathroom breaks. Frampton has a really <laughs> stupidly named album called Frampton's Camel. Yeah, well, actually, that was his band, Frampton's Camel. Um, but yeah, <laughs> okay. actually, it's a pretty good record. I like that record. But, um, you know, uh, and also, uh, Frampton, yeah, the Frampton Comes Alive thing was such a weird, again, such a weird outlier because it, it really was, um, you know, they had, again, they had tried to break him via radio for a while, and then, you know, they throw this out there. The other, uh, you know, addendum to my cheap trick uh, being huge in Japan piece was that that album at Budokan was not released in the U.S. It was actually uh, released only in Japan and and became it was a U.S. import and it, the demand for it was so high and the radio play ultimately sort of um, you know broke them that they actually had to uh, repackage it and release it in the states. So interesting. Well, and it's funny again we were talking earlier the, you know the version of I want you to want me that you hear on on classic rock radio and then back then you know probably current radio is the Budokan version you don't well, hear yeah, the, the one that version. charted was yeah. I mean that album um you know that that was off their second album in color and that album was two years old at that point so um you know it was nice to try you know it's good to hit with a song that you recorded two years earlier but um you know it was the it was the live version that pushed them out and so you think that they kind of ginned up extra demand in a way by like making it kind of scarce. The the fact that it had to be this Japanese import was kind of a cool, 
again, like it, it's got a you know it adds a little bit of a, a desirability to it that it might not otherwise have. But I and I think that but I think this is sort of though in of addition to things. serving to uh, convince me that this band was actually from Australia before I knew any better. So <laughs> uh, it's it's from, they're from Rockford, Illinois, the uh, Australia yeah. of Central well, it is, Illinois. It's, it's, yeah, often referred to as the J- the Japan of South Central Illinois. Yeah, exactly. But uh, or yeah, um, yeah, uh, the the the, the uh, Tokyo of, of Greater Carbondale. Um, I I do think though that um, you know I think those things like those that would occur to you now that that could have happened, but in fact these are the kinds of accidents that you know were you know certainly beneficial for these artists, but. You couldn't have dreamed up that scenario back then. Nobody would ever release an, a, a Japanese album with the hope of it hitting in America. It just, you know, it, they, they were worlds apart. You just didn't have any connection whatsoever. I mean, yeah. this is, again, back in the time when it used to take, you know, uh, British records two years. They would chart in America two years later. Just be, I mean, literally, there was, there was a, a wall, or figuratively. Yeah. I think those two are the best examples of kind of that organic growth off the off the live album, and and you know I mean I think every band had a live album back then, which is is very different than today. Although there seems to be a renaissance. One other one I just wanted to mention from the '80s, and then we should probably take a break here soon, was the U2 under the Red Blood Sky, and that was one that actually hit the MTV generation because they had war, the album War had actually gained some success prior, so that was a, a big album. But U2 was one of those bands that was on the, the up, and as Wyndham, you probably saw them in, the, in those 80, early 80s, mid-80s shows. You know, a very, very driven band. And that video for Sunday Bloody Sunday was the live video that you would see and, and you know, had the, the sort of dramatic it, speech in the beginning by Bono about, you know, the rebel song and, uh, you know, the song's got a lot of talk and, and waving the white flag. And, and, you know, they rip on that song. It's, a, yeah. it's huge. No, it, and it was, it was off a live EP. That performance. Oh, that's cool. I didn't actually know that, and that's always been my favorite U2 song. So, Yeah, that performance was really what I think that video, more than any video I can think of, is the thing that like turned them from a mid-level band into massive rock stars. World-dominating. Yeah, because the anticipation for the next album became huge. I mean, people liked War, but it was this intervening live album under Blood Red Sky, which is what, you know, sort of really drove interest in The Unforgettable Fire, and The Unforgettable Fire is what made them a stadium band. So cool. You want, you want to take a break? You want to, yeah, let's do that. What do you want to listen to, Wanna? I want to listen to the first song on our new album. This next one is the first song on our new album, which just came out this week. It's called Surreal.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking about live albums. And I, I was just joking before when I was uh, trying to imitate the um, uh, Robin Zander's um, t- uh, yelling of uh, this is the first song on our new album. But it is funny from, you know, if you, uh, you listen to enough of these albums, sometimes the... Uh, you know, the spoken word parts, the song introduction of the band introduction becomes just as iconic as any of the music. I mean, the, you know, Kiss Alive, you want, you asked for the best, you got the best. Um, you know, stuff like that uh, is, um, you know, becomes... It's true, those catchphrases do sort of become like, you know, synonymous with that band, yeah. Yeah, on your feet or on your knees for the amazing Blue Oyster Cult. Anyway, um, so the, the sort of, you know, the, the live album, I mean, I think sort of, you know, Live at the Fillmore East by the Allman Brothers and, and some others, you know, who captured a more like improvisational jammy band all sort of led into the, you know, the sort of uh, juggernaut of, of live acts. Um, and that was uh, the Grateful Dead, who, who I believe released a live album basically every time they played. Um, Jerry, you want to talk about yeah, the... Uh, well, I'll talk about the kind of whole sort of subculture of, of the Grateful Dead, which spawned, you know, a million jam bands, um, many of whom we, we don't like on this pod, but, but we're going to give them a fair shake here because this is probably, uh, when they're at their best, it certainly uh, is live, apparently. But, um, you know, the Grateful Dead were one of those bands, and I think you, you, you talked about it when kind of in the beginning that really struggled in the studio. I, I mean, I think you talk to really diehard Deadhead fans, and then nobody really listens to the albums, you know, the, the studio cuts by the dead, and it, it really became about these shows. And and they opened up <clears throat> recording as early as the 60s, but really kind of let it go wild in the 70s. And, um, you know, there was a couple key... I mean, there's a whole history about, you know, the guy who ended up doing all the Dick's Picks records, um, uh, there was a woman who, you know, had, and I'm forgetting her name. I apologize. She was actually in the sound breaking uh, documentary, mm-hmm. who who had tapped into their sound boards and, and did these perfect, you know, sort of recordings of these. And they basically allowed like a black, I, I'd say black market, but nobody was selling anything. It was trading, mm-hmm. so sort of an open market, free um, kind of, uh, you know, free grouping of music and people would trade these tapes obviously when internet age came people still would would send files over you know online and and uh mp3s cd burn cds when cds came out and, and that became how you listen to the grateful dead i'm, I'm sure at least Wyndham and i have, have known somebody or had a friend who was a big deadhead um back in the, in the late 80s 90s who had a suitcase full of you know recorded tapes of their shows um, and exactly, and, and you know, with with handwritten, you know, sort of hand designs on the covers and, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, the one thing that you can give this this band credit for is is a the the freedom that it allowed its audience to really share the music, and then I think also sidestepping the record industry. You know, they they kind of knew what they were good at, and mm-hmm. they were good at touring, and they were good at playing live, and and uh, and they allowed their audience to really kind of fully immerse itself in that, which then led to you know bands like Fish, obviously the Allman Brothers, who, who were around at the same time as the dead and, and put out you know a great studio album that you mentioned earlier but also kind of in the in the late early 90s fell into the jam band tours um you know we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh the recent death of colonel bruce hampton i have no idea how many of his shows were bootlegged but he did just die on stage unfortunately yeah, that was, a, um, that was an surrounded by yeah surrounded by um a tribute band you know of, of his closest peers so yeah, he, pretty he, amazing he, way to go out he was uh there was a 70th birthday party slash uh tribute 
concert uh, for him at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. You know, um, you know Peter Buck and Mike Mills from REM. Uh, some of the guys from Widespread Panic, a lot of the people that you know really loved that Blues guy. Traveler, and he uh, dropped dead on stage in the middle of his own birthday party slash tribute concert. Uh, as you're gonna you know, go, sort of tragic as that is, it's it's probably maybe one of the greatest rock and roll deaths of all time. Definitely, and I mean, and the trend kind of continues, and, and you really can say that the Grateful Dead, you know, really started this and then kind of mastered it. But you have bands today like Wilco, who you can go on their website and download shows. Pearl Jam, you know, recently, who again kind of has put out studio albums that are, let's say, a bit, a bit lackluster, and tend to be a great live band, and and they've put out all their shows. You, a lot of these guys you can purchase, but you can also get a lot of this music free too. Uh, bands like My Morning Jacket. Um, you know, and, and I will say, and, and you guys uh, make fun of me, uh, rightly so, you know, I, I went to a lot of fish shows when I was in high school and, you know, they would do things like play the entire White Album from start to finish. And that was something that was pretty cool. And then you could have a, a document of that if you were, you know, a fish fan, which I was not. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, is there anything, has there been anything like as, as big, do you think, as the, because there was that huge like international tape exchange, right? Of, uh, yeah, like, relics, I mean, you, the dead. Yeah, these people uh, yeah. were like massive, massive collectors of this stuff. And, you know, it became like a really, um, like it, it was sort of a demonstration of like fandom and, you know, it was this, this sort of, um, yeah, tell you show your bona fides. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. It's almost like a reliquary. You know, it's like you, you, um, you know, you have, being able to collect the most, like the most breadth and the best recordings of all of these different shows and stuff. And some people have like absurd collections. Um, Sorry, I was just know, looking they up have, the word reliquary on on, on um, Google. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> does it does it say Grateful Dead tape exchange? Um, well, I think but, uh, I think the Dead embrace their their fans bootlegging in the same way that you know Metallica really embraced Napster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, the but, yeah, that, yeah, I guess. But there's your it is kind of like the proto Napster. Right? Oh, it was. I mean, that's exactly what it was. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I don't think it's. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know because I'm not in the jam jam world. Um, but, like, you know, I do believe that, yeah, there is a lot of this. I don't think people, like, you know, for Fish, who still tours, I don't think people listen to Fish albums, but I think, uh, boot, you know, there's tons of bootlegs of Fish. And then I think those same fans have some crossover into bands like My Morning Jacket, Wilco, um, and, you know, which are doing the same thing because these guys are hardcore show people, you know, and, and that's what they do. Um, I mean, it's kind of the cult of the show. I mean, we get, we got some heat, um, particularly from, from folks in my uh, vintage uh, for kicking the Grateful Dead out of our Greatest American Bands tournament uh, in the first Don't round. It. But it was, you know, it was the, that was my question to those folks, and that is, you know, what is their great album? And to a person, everybody was like, it's not about the albums. Yeah. Winterland, you know? 76, yeah. <laughs> you know, Iowa set State two. Fair, 74, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one other genre I kind of want to talk about to get me out of Jamland um, and to scale it back is. You know, I think live albums really lend themselves to to country and to, to really the singer songwriter country artist. Um, you know, people like uh, Johnny Cash, Towns Van Zant, Steve Earle today. Um, got him. Chris Christopherson has a fantastic live album, and again, it's it's a music that is better scaled down to its its bones. So when you have a, a really good, and we're talking more roots country here, I have no idea if. Garth Brooks' live album is is worth uh, anything, but but if you if you take this music and kind of you know 
get down to the the real soul of it. it it's American roots music. It's guys sitting around, you know, having uh, some beers with acoustic guitars and and writing great lyrics and, and delivering those lyrics. Um, you know, with sort of road-worn voices. And, and I think two albums in particular I'll talk about. One we all love, and it's Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison. I mean, again, you kind of get a, an encapsulation of, of all of Johnny Cash's best early work on an album that, you know, you think, okay, Folsom Prison, the guy's playing in front of prisoners, he's singing songs like Cocaine Blues, 25 Minutes to Go, the the classic Folsom Prison. And it is a joyous beautiful, just happy, you know, gung-ho, hardcore album. And that is a great record. I mean, this guy, you know, goes to this place because he, he, he you know, in a sense feels the pain of these men and, 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 you know, looks at them as humans and gives them one of the best shows, you know, one of the best shows he's ever done. Um, you know, if anybody, you know, if you need a starter kit for Johnny Cash, I think we all agree, right? Yeah. Folsom Prison is, is the one you lay down. I think as it's opposed to Metallica yeah. who played San Quentin because those are the only people who weren't illegally downloading their, their music. <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> I believe so. It's a fan appreciation day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, but I, I do think, I mean, I actually would say that, that that's Cash's best album. And it, it kind of, it's, it's interesting, it, it kind of harkens back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about, you know, these labels not, uh, you know, not being, feeling like they could capture the spirit of these acts. Um, there's only a couple of, you know, performers I've ever seen where I'm like, you know, where I was just, you know, blown away uh, because I realized that, you know, the, the recorded medium could not contain their voice and you know Katie Lang was one of them for me I saw her at Symphony Hall years and years ago and I was like wow this there's there's no way a record could capture how powerful her voice is it just it's it really runs out of uh bandwidth to do that really um which I think is pretty amazing. Well, who also is kind of, I mean, a, you know, she has a voice beyond all others, but is a roots artist. You know, she's yeah. somebody who, who definitely comes from that same kind of elk. The other guy that I want to talk about is, is you know, one of my favorite songwriters, and I'll, I'll agree with uh, Steve Earle in saying, you know, I too would dance with him on Bob Dylan's grave in my cowboy boots, and that's Towns Van Zandt. Um, and he has a, you know, a, it's another guy that it's, he's a really hard guy to say, hey, grab, you know, uh, flying shoes or grab an album by Towns. I mean, you you kind of have to immerse yourself in Towns. He's a, he's a poet. He's a an un, kind of an unlikable person if you if you go back and look at his his biography and and obviously had suffered severe depression, alcoholism, the whole nines. Um, but live at the old quarter, which was recorded in, in um, seventy three, I believe, in in Houston, Texas. Is, is Towns at his best. I mean, first of all, he's singing at his best. Later on, his, his voice became, you know, pretty worn out by drugs and alcohol. It's a collection of all of, it's 26 songs, so it's two two albums, actually, when it came out. Um, only three covers, and he, too, covers Cocaine Blues, like Johnny on, on um, Folsom Prison. And uh, it's, it's just, you hear kind of the charm, the wit, funny, you know, banter in between. And, and I, you know, I got to see a, a lot of people like Guy Clark live and Joe Ely, and, and one of the best parts of these types of singer-songwriters is the stories that go along with their music. And, and, and Live of the Old Quarter really is kind of an encapsulation of everything by him. And then Towns is a guy, you know, who I think just writes from a different level 
um, you know, certainly a very depressing level, <laughs> yeah, that, that we've all felt, right? Maybe not as extreme, uh, hopefully not as extreme um, as he seemed to, but, it, you know, there's those lyrics really can hit you, especially um, if you ever have had any dark thoughts. Um, and, uh, you know, to hear him just kind of raw with an acoustic guitar, it's, it's an album that, again, if I was to give someone a starter kit and say, this is why I love this singer-songwriter, he doesn't have the best voice, he's not the best guitar picker, um, he is a fantastic writer. And, and, you know, studio albums always try, try to make guys like this pop. They try to make them big, so they throw in strings or horns, and, you know, this music just, it, it's not made for that. Um, so those are two that I wanted to mention, and yeah, there's there's, a, there's numerous other country albums that are that are great live live albums. Well, yeah. I think the the largest selling uh, live album ever um, is Garth Brooks's, right? The probably I mean, is, he's yeah. got a lot. Yeah, have said exactly. Disparaging no, I mean, about it, it just, early on. Um, no, no, no. But I mean, it just yeah. I think that's I think it sold 18 million copies yeah. or something like that. People love it, you know. And that's actually I was thinking of. Um, I got friends in low places. Is usually that's another one of those songs where you usually hear uh, yeah. the live version over any of the recorded versions because um, it's kind of cool to you know. It's like one of those times you don't really mind the audience chiming in a little bit. So, mm-hmm. um, which will which I think will will segue nicely into yeah. So um, the uh, the next segment. But what what were you thinking of uh, listening to before we take a break? Well, you know. Everybody's pretty familiar with Johnny Cash, so let's go with a Towns Van Zandt song. Let's do uh, probably his best best known song, which was covered by Willie Nelson and Waylon and, and that crew, and it's Poncho and Lefty off of uh, Live at the Old Quarter. Uh, a few announcements for the people that just came in. Other people have heard it five times, all, I'm sure. The restrooms are upstairs. Payphones upstairs. Pool tables upstairs. Foosball's upstairs. Cigarette machines upstairs. No, we're not talking about that. This week, the Old Quarters had Towns Van Zandt for five nights. We have him for one more night, and we're glad to have him here tonight. Towns Van Zandt. Thanks a lot. Play uh, this song first called... uh, Called uh, Punch and Lift. Sorry about the air conditioners being off, but it, it won't be very long. It gets really hot. I don't know what we'll do. Living on the road, my friend, was gonna keep you free and clean. Now you wear your skin like iron and your breath's as hard as kerosene. You weren't your mama's only boy, but her favorite one, it seems. She began to cry when you said goodbye. Sank into your dreams. Poncho was a bandit boy's. His horse was fast as polished steel Wore his gun outside his pants For all the honest world to feel But Poncho met his match, you know On the deserts down in Mexico And nobody heard his dying words But that's the way it goes 
And all the federales say They could have had him any day They only let him hang around Out of kindness, I suppose Well, Lefty, he can't sing the blues All night long like he used to Dust that poncho bit down south Ended up in Lefty's mouth The day they laid poor poncho low Lefty split for Ohio And where he got the bread to go they Ain't nobody knows And all the federales say Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about live albums, um, past, present, and future. And I think we've gotten to our future part, um, or our, at least our, our more modern and current take on the, on the live album. Christian, um, shoot. Well, um, actually, I will wind it back a little bit, just because I think I want to start with, uh, with sort of a discussion of the Farewell album. Um, I mean, this is sort of a, a subgenre in its own right, but I think for a lot of bands, um, and, you know, it makes sense. They, you sort of want to pull your friends together um, and, you know, deliver a sort of farewell for your fans. Often that's a party that sort of gets recorded. And, you know, I think the, the sort of first and, and most iconic version of this, perhaps, is, uh, is the band's Last Waltz, um, 1978, which, you know, it, it's interesting. This was, of course, also a Scorsese uh, film. And, a, you know, I, the, the movie is actually what I saw first. Um, the band, I guess, had two, uh, two live albums, right? They did Rock of Ages earlier, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because, you know, I, I think that The Last Waltz is really, um, you know, em- embellished and, and sort of uh, lionized, I think, partly because of the, um, the quality of the, the musicians who are performing on it along with, uh, along with the band. So, you know, they, of course, were Dylan's first touring band when Dylan went electric. Um, and so you have, you know, more than a dozen uh, musicians, everybody from Joni Mitchell to Van Morrison to Muddy Waters Neil to Diamond. Dylan himself. Neil Diamond came out, exactly. Uh, Neil Young. Neil Young. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really awesome um, collection of musicians. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and for that reason, I think it, it's sort of, you know, it is a sort of massive celebratory piece. What's interesting, though, I think also is the fact that, you know, this was a this was a time when the you know the band was obviously kind of dissolving. Rick Danko into uh, a decade of cocaine abuse, um, and uh, you know Robbie Robertson clearly doesn't get along at this point with Levon Helm. So as much as it is a sort of celebration, it's also kind of you know it, it's it's a little bit to divorce. I don't want to say dishonest, yeah, but it's like you know they they come across as just these incredible performers, but like they. Clearly, there was a lot of a lot of uh, stress, you know, within the within it's the fabric like, of that group. It's like having your twentieth anniversary party and getting divorced the next day. Yeah, we're yeah, getting divorced much. at the anniversary <laughs> party. Yeah, um, but uh, but then you know, and so another one I think you know we've we've got to sort of point out, and I'll just I'll hit these the the three farewell albums that I want to mention sort of chronologically. I guess was you know in nineteen ninety three. Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. Um, and this, again, has companion uh, video footage, but I think um, this really holds up in its own right as, as an album that you know I listen to. And I think for a lot of people, um, 
a, a lot of Nirvana fans, you know, the live album really is, the Unplugged album really is uh, just this this sort of tremendous catalog of their tastes and their interests. I mean, it was arguably the, you know, the barest sort of emotion that you ever see um, from from Kurt Cobain and, and you know, Chris Novoselic and, and Dave Grohl. Um, I have no idea to this day how they managed to get Dave Grohl to behave himself and stay so quiet back there. Um, it seems like he would have just dominated a recording like that. But it really is this sort of, you know, it's a very spare production. Um, and of course, you know, the, the sort of limited instrumentation really does sort of put Kurt's voice forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when I say it's a farewell album, you know, it's a little... Exactly. It's it's a little bit. Uh, it's you know you could you could sort of argue this one either way because of course you know it, it did it was the last thing the last really sort of public uh, suicide note to the world maybe um, but uh, but it definitely you know it is definitely just sort of you know seeping uh, emotion I think and one well, like the last waltz it was a, a way for them to showcase like you said Christian some of their friends so you had the meat puppets yeah, the meat join puppets. them. And then also, I, I you know I personally think they do the man who sold the world better than than Bowie, and I, oh, yeah. I hate saying that because yeah. I, I love Bowie, but that version, the Nirvana version, is fantastic. Definitely, definitely does Lead Belly better than Lead Belly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But uh, at least, at least on that tune, uh, where did you sleep last night? Yeah, he um, rips that. So, oh, and that you know that being the last song on the record is is really bone chilling, frankly. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinarily powerful, um, record of, of, I think sort of where he was in his life. Um, and but again, then I, the, I, just to throw in the, I was there the, uh, and this is a good segue to, to your next <laughs> one, but I was, Jared and I, uh, that was, I didn't realize until we, until we did the greatest American band competition that we had seen, that was the week, uh, that they recorded unplugged was the week that, uh, we saw them twice in New York. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, um, and uh, then the the last uh, two. Okay, so, uh, pivoting off your your comment that you were there, um, mm-hmm. of course, from from the LCD sound system tune. Uh, the last one I'll point out is LCD sound systems, the long goodbye, which. You know, this is again. It's funny. All three of these are, are, have companion video footage, um, and in the case of the last waltz and LCD sound system, so the two that were actually deliberate farewells, um, I would say that I actually probably give an edge to the video footage, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But you know, I, I think live at Madison Square Garden is you know it's an, it's an awesome. It's a statement that they're here to party. They want to, you know, they want to party the lights out. Yeah, one last time. Um, and of course, having seen them more recently, uh, they didn't go away. Um, so you know, there's. So I, it's I an even longer probably, goodbye. Exactly. Um, and just so, just to be clear, the the companion uh, video in this case is uh, a movie called "Shut Up and Play the Hits," uh, which, which uh, chronicles the Spike Jones. <laughs> I don't mean to, to cut you off, Christian, but I do have one quick funny story about that. Wyndham and I went to see that movie in, in Kendall Square in, in uh, Cambridge. And, uh, you know, we don't generally find ourselves going to, to rock concert movies. And so we sort of, you know, got in line and it was only showing one night. So there was a lot of like indie kids that were lined up ready to go. And Wyndham and I, I think, both turned to each other and were just like, God, I hope nobody gets up and dances. <laughs> we were ready to like run out. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up like being the two like old guy Muppets <laughs> exactly. in the balcony. Yeah. Yeah. Ended yeah, up being great kids. in the fun movie, but it was uh, definitely uh, I was just did, so did anyone dance? No, they were they were very well behaved and watched the movie. Oh, good. Like, so you so shouldn't this, a movie yeah. theater. Uh, 
Well, uh, lovely. <laughs> that was a terrific little anecdote. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, but uh, so, you know, turning to, you know, you, you guys had also sort of posed the question to me, what's the state of the, the live album these days? And, you know, it's funny. I, I started thinking about it, and I, like, there are, I mean, so LCD, obviously, that was, what, 2011, Um Prior to that, you know, you've got a couple of big ones. So you've got 2003 was uh, the San Quentin Metallic album that I mentioned earlier. Um, 2007, Daft Punk blew the fucking doors off with their album Alive, um, which is a phenomenal DJ set. That was, of course, at, at Coachella. Um, and uh, uh, then, you know, I think, but but turning the, the, turning the, the clock forward a little bit, um, you know, most recently, um, it is kind of funny. Wyndham, you mentioned that a that a Sifjan album came out. Um, actually, the, this week, the week yeah, that we're he, recording, he did Carrie and Lowell live and released it. His most um, recent, which album. I think actually, you know, you know, in a way, that's a that's a format um, that's a format that it, you know really would sort of potentially add to um, add to the the sort of gravitas that that record, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's of course it's a sort of tribute to his parents. Um, and a, a really sort of touching record um, in the studio. I can only imagine it is in, in a live performance as well. Um, but the two others that I would point to are, so Sleater Kinney had, what, Live in Paris? Uh, that came out in 2016, and then the same year, I think it was recorded in 2015, and then the same year, Titus Andronicus put out an album, Stadium Rock. Um, but, you know, in both of these cases, look, those are two of my favorite bands. I've said it a million times before. Nobody's going to be surprised uh, to hear that. I don't turn to those albums all that much. And I think that part of it is, you know, we, we have sort of at our fingertips, there's just, there is so much live footage and so many well-recorded, you know, um, quality sort of audio uh, performances, you know, available on, on things like YouTube. So whether it's the KEXP sessions or Audio Tree Live, you know, Pick your tiny uh, desk. Take, take your pick. Yeah. The tiny desk concerts are, are wonderful. Yeah, um, you live know there's the brother, so brother, many brother. examples. Exactly, um, live at the brother, brother, brother. Um, you know, there's so many examples of uh, of of places where you know these artists go in and perform either in front of a small studio audience or you get pretty good you know pretty good recordings of uh, their their tour performances. That you know, I think it kind of it kind of detracts a little bit from the the majesty and like this sort of special occasion quality that came through on live albums in the 70s and 80s. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think live, you know, at, I, live at Leeds versus Carpool Karaoke, you know? Um, yeah. I think there are, you know, there's a lot of, of stuff that is designed to be viewed now, uh, you know, sort of YouTube clips. And then there's also the, just that proliferation of, of, you know, people shooting their own uh, live shows and their own, you know, everybody's got a recording device in their pocket now. So it's a, you know, it's a different beast altogether now. The, the kids call them phones, Wyndham. Yeah. <laughs> pocket, pocket computers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the operator <laughs> of my pocket calculator. But, <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I, I think you, you really, anytime I, I seek out new music or a new band or even a band, an old band, and then I think the really kind of cool thing is you can go back and, you know, not that, not, not obviously not to the Rolling Stones necessarily in the 60s, but say I wanted to check out, you know, somebody like Magnolia Electrico, you know, they're now our post videos of his shows live and, and bands that you know aren't necessarily around today um, for various reasons so um, you know I, I think 
some of those that, recordings no, are good, some of them are bad, but but you still get to to hear kind of what you were looking for. You can't look up a band without twenty, you know, homemade and then some studio performances coming up. Yeah, there's not going to be a so sur- I, there always used to be that element of surprise, and for better or worse, when you bought tickets to see a band because you didn't know whether they were going to be good live or not. And you can kind of test drive that before you, you know, make that uh, investment and in going to see, you know, the time and money of, of going to see a band now. You can sort of check out their clips and see whether this is the kind of thing that you're going to enjoy, which is... Uh, it's it's funny, cheap. though. I th- you do that more than I do, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I've actually, despite, you know, growing up around the... the proliferation of you know everybody having the opportunity to record stuff and post it on the internet like i actually don't usually check out um the like live concert footage of bands before i go i mean i'm pretty indiscriminate in that way i kind of like being surprised or you know um in or in, disappointed re- yeah in far fewer cases disappointed i would say um but what? uh you know right. one interesting thing jeremy yeah that we we saw lcd sound system recently when they um when they opened up at Brooklyn Steel playing oh, did a five-minute run together. <laughs> yes, we yeah. did. We were uh, um, a foot away from LCD sound system, can we Oh, say? that's right. Yeah, yeah. we were. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, they, that's true. Uh, Wyndham was on vacation. Anyway, um, but, uh, you know, they that was one of the few times I've seen, uh, you know, a band actually say up front, look, we, we are dead serious about this do not record this stuff we spent a lot of time working on these songs and we want the first time people hear them to be our versions not your shitty phone versions and i you know i think that that's there's i and for the most part from what i could tell um you know i thought that was observed granted we were in the front rows so uh yeah, very, I very hard see, to see what was I going on see that many people us. yeah way behind yeah. us but um but um, no i agree <laughs> and i think it made for a really in, i mean the show was beyond enjoyable anyways but it, i think it made for I, so many shows i go to and i have you know and i can do the the windham can do the windham old man impression but you do have you have somebody with a phone in front of you or taking a million pictures and i mean i don't mind that it, it definitely is fun and we certainly take pictures at shows for our, our blog and the brother brother um at brotherpod.com and for blurt but you know it's something that uh too you just want to kind of show i didn't pull my phone out of my pocket one time during that show you it, know mine it was kind of nice being kind of nice like having the cord cut a little bit and you know it, in a way yeah in a way it really actually felt sort of strange i mean for for somebody my age who's like had a phone since i was in middle school it's like it was kind of liberating um you know I, I, I really i enjoyed it I just want to mention one other thing just about live music in general. And, and when you, I think you would probably agree with me, technology has really improved live music. So what I talked about early on with the, um, with the, the fact that some of those things sounded thin, you know, now, like I, I remember seeing the Flaming Lips, for instance, when the Soft Bolton first came out. So it was the Flaming Lips tour of Soft Bolton. I'd seen them before that when they were more, you know, sort of guitar driven. And then I also saw them at Pitchfork Fest when they played that years later. And just the ability in what these guys can do today with technology live really is amazing. And so they can really recreate those albums, obviously take it to a next level. But I think, too, to your point, Christian, on, on not being as excited about actually hearing a lot album is because it's, it's better live now than it was before. It was like the studio album kind of took away from the live aspect of the band or the rawness of the band. I think now, you know, really just seeing them is the best well, way to go. And there was always a, a, you know, a little bit of a controversy around live albums because um, you know, back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, you know, the, you know, the, the debate was always, well, did they, did they take it back into the studio and enhance a lot of the sound? And the answer yes, is they did. very likely. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, should we pick some of our favorite live albums, or do you guys uh, want to continue on this this conversation? No, I, I, let's go for it, Christian. What what is uh, what's the album that you would uh, what's your uh, that you would uh, give to the aliens when they land? Um, well, I would probably give them music that they would enjoy playing in their spaceships. Uh, so I am actually going to pick Daft Punk's Alive 1997, which I think is just a amazing, amazing um, catalog of their music and, and really one of my favorite. It's, it's certainly the live album that I probably go back to the most. Cool. Nice. Well, it's a great album. If I were... Uh, if I were to throw up the classic of all uh, you know live albums for me, it's it's at Budokan. It's a cheap trick album. I spoke about it length earlier. Um, it's just there's some there's something about uh, cheap trick and you know I was thinking about this today. Cheap trick and the, and the replacements and you know we had this conversation around the replacements during the tournament. Um, but you know what makes them so different? What makes them so good? And part of it is just I think the same thing with cheap trick. It's it's just songcraft like. Um, they're great at writing a song that sounds like a rock song. It, it just, you know, it, there's uh, it, it sound it looks easy, but if it were easy, everybody would do it. And I feel like that's cheap trick, sleight of hand. Um, you know, just a sort of great tune. And uh, you know, obviously, uh, Budokan proves that they uh, reproduced it live pretty well too. I was gonna say I've, we've seen Cheap Trick a bunch of times, and then they're a band that you shouldn't miss if they're if they're, they're actually still town. really good. Yeah, they're really good. Um, I'm gonna cheat a little bit and throw out too. I mean, I talked about a couple of my favorites earlier on when I was talking about country music, but I'm gonna go classic, kind of classic rock here. And, and uh, I don't really listen to a lot of live albums, but there are two that I, I, I go back to and that I like a lot. Um, you guys named obviously two ahead of me as well that I like, but I love uh, 1979's Live Rust by Neil Young. And uh, again, it's it's an album that kind of it really captures him at his prime, and uh, you know after he'd kind of put out all, I think his, his best work, and so it's a real mix of the acoustic Neil Young that I, I really love, and then the electric Crazy Horse Neil Young, um, and it's it's just a great encapsulation if you want to hear like all of the best Neil Young songs, and he's another guy that is very good live, um, and really and very different job. live. Yep, definitely. You know, a much more imposing figure and a much uh, sort of bolder sound uh, live, which is, I think, why he put out so many live albums. And then the other one that I'm going to go to is, is just kind of encapsulates a cool period in time, I think, and, and it's uh, 1966 live at the Royal Albert Hall, Bob Dylan. And this is the tour that he basically separated into two sets. So he had the acoustic set and then the electric set with the you know aforementioned band backing him up. And... Uh, I know you guys aren't as big Bob Dylan fans as I am. This, again, kind of hits right after his sort of, you know, what a lot of people consider his best work. And so it was 1966. He put out Blonde on Blonde, um, Highway 61 Revisited. So it's a lot of his greatest songs. Um, and then just the anger that this concert caused, or these concerts caused, I just thought was completely cool. And, and you hear it on none better than the electric version of, of Like a Rolling Stone, which caps off this concert. And it, it's it's one of the best sort of, and I think Bob Dylan was always good at this, fuck you, you know, to the crowd at the end. And he just rips that song with the band backing him up. So I highly recommend uh, at least giving that track a spin. A spin. Cool. Well, should we take a break and come back? Sounds good. All right. 
We are coming to the end of this podcast, which means it's time for the segment that we end every episode with, and that's, uh, what are you listening to? What are you listening to, Christian? So I've um, been listening pretty heavily to the uh, to the new Black Angels album called Death Song. Um, these guys are sort of sludgier psych rockers um, who, you know, I've, I've been a pretty big fan of theirs for a long time. Actually, the first album I think I listened to was... Um, I believe was their first, which was Passover. Um, but, uh, but no, this, this new one is, is, uh, I think sort of kicks them up to a, to a new level. The, you know, it, it's it changes tempos a little bit, which is something that I think they, they haven't necessarily done as much of in the past. Um, slightly more, uh, clarity in, in, in the vocals, um, and, uh, songwriting. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's really good. I would definitely recommend giving it a spin. Cool. Well, I'm going to um, keep mine short and sweet. I've been listening to uh, Kendrick Lamar's Damn uh, on repeat uh, for the past week. And uh, rather than try and embellish what has already been said uh, about this record, I just highly, highly, highly recommend it. And I'm sure you've heard it, but if you haven't, take a listen. Damn. Damn. 
Jared? Damn. Um, yeah, so I'm going to flip over to TV real quick, and I've been watching the second season of The Missing on Stars. And uh, for those of you that don't know the show, it's a, it's a British show about children going missing <laughs> and the, the agony that causes their parents and sort of the mystery of, uh, you know, um, lots of different plot turns and, a, um, you know, lots of different countries. Uh, I, I loved the first season and then it really, the ending really ruined it for me and I, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And then the second season popped up and I remember why I, I, I loved the first season so much. It's, it's just really good writing, great storytelling and a great mystery show. For those of you who uh, can tolerate the the pain of uh, young children going missing, and a French really, detective, in a French detective, yeah, who constantly Wyndham loves it when young children go missing. <laughs> and then uh, the <laughs> other thing, real quick, is that uh, I'm pretty excited for the new, and I'm going to butcher their la- their name because I always said Haim, but it's Haim. Um, Haim. Haim. Thank you. And it's uh, the new song right now, right now that. Um, was released video, the studio video. I just thought that video was really cool. I've been watching it a ton on repeat, and that song has been stuck in my head. So I'm I'm super psyched for their new album. I'll check that out. Yeah, I actually haven't I haven't listened to it yet, so I will and do that. We get our first new LCD tracks in quite a while as well today, so we'll be listening to those in a few hours. Week. That's right. Um, well, Jeremy and I have already heard them because yeah, they played them at the they're concert. They're really good. It's kind of old old news, just, but thanks, and, Wayne. We and also it. to yeah. the uh, to the. Um, <laughs> To the management of Brooklyn Steel, if you see any brother, brother, brother uh, paraphernalia on your toilet. Um, you- <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Shut up, Wyndham. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so are we adding songs to the um, 1,000 top 10 songs of all time? Yes. Uh, yes. I think that's the first time somebody said that without screwing it up, by the way. I'm, well done. Well, I'm, I'm, Thanks. I'm going to double down and say uh, my addition to the 100,000 top 10 songs of <laughs> all time is uh, To Lives to Fly by Towns Van Zandt. Shit. Well, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. Kendrick Lamar's Humble. Nice. Nice. God, well, I think we're going to go to uh, two country artists because I'm going to do uh, Johnny Cash, Orange Blossom Special off of Folsom Prison. Nice. Well, I think that's going to do it for today. Thanks, you guys, so much. Uh, it was fun talking live albums with you, and uh, we will be back soon after we've heard the new LCD, or after I've heard the new LCD sound system. Yeah, we've already <laughs> heard that. Yeah, that was great. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Later. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.